Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. You'll find the passage printed in your bulletin as well. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 21. Paul is uh, concluding his remarks uh, to the church at Rome, and he's uh, been giving a bit of the big picture as we were talking about last week. And um, so what he's doing right now is he's reminding them of everything that he's been teaching them, setting them up for a request that he's about to make uh, regarding some of his future uh, plans as a missionary. Uh, so hear now the word of the Lord. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word to us this morning. We pray that you would remind us of the gospel or that you would send us forth to preach and share the gospel, that we would fulfill our priestly service, that you would get great glory in us and through those you reach through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, three different times in, in these uh, uh, few verses, Paul mentions the gospel. He talks about the uh, the gospel of God. He talks about the gospel of Christ. Uh, he calls it both of those things in uh, a third place. He just refers to it simply and generically as the gospel. Uh, so we ought to be asking ourselves this morning, what does he mean uh, when he talks about the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel? Uh, and, he, and he speaks, of course, at the end there about his ambition, his desire to preach this gospel where uh, it has not yet been heard, uh, to reach those who are unreached. Uh, but the funny thing is, too, is that he's just finished 14 chapters worth of gospel reminders to those who, of course, have heard. Um, so, so it's not as if he's um, excluding one group, the believers, in favor of the unbelievers. Uh, he believes the gospel applies to both. And, uh, and so that's really going to be our, our flow this morning. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the gospel for starters. Uh, early on, uh, right when he began uh, this, this letter to this church uh, in, a, in a very powerful city in that age, he began by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed of this message, this good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. And it's this message that we receive by faith. Um, It's the righteous who will live by faith. Uh, So Paul has been talking about the gospel. And and if you come to Tabernacle each week, you hear the gospel, and hopefully you are sharing the gospel, etc. But Um, But sometimes it's good for us to be challenged to think very, very clearly, very concisely about what exactly is the gospel. So uh, to that end, uh, on your outline, we've got these in in your bullets and a little handout. There's this box there, and it's it's roughly the same, you know, size, same area in that box as you would find on a post-it note. So right now, no kidding... Every single one of you, grab a pen. If you don't have a pen, there's one in that little black folder, or you can share pens or whatever. I want you to write a post-it note gospel. A hundred words or less, something like that. Write the gospel in that space um, that's on your outline, and and I'm going to give you a moment, give you a few moments here to to write it out. I'm going to do it too. So everybody write out, what is the gospel? Okay, you ready? Go. Time's up. Okay, we're good, right? Everybody get enough time to do that? That's my gospel. You don't need 100 words. You don't need 50 words. You need two words, Jesus plus Christ. This is, this is Paul's gospel. It's this message of Jesus um, and you, and you know uh, the message of the angels to Mary and Joseph that you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? He's going to save his people from their sins. And Paul says that um, you know, when, uh, when Jesus came, what he did was he died as a substitute for our sins, take our sins away. Uh, this is old news for, for many of you. For some of you, if you're new to Tabernacle, if you're new to the church or to the Bible, whatever, you need to know that when Jesus came, he came with a mission, and he considered himself the Lamb of God. He would be the one who was going to take away the sins of the world. Uh, in the Old Testament, they would make these, these animal sacrifices. They would take a, a lamb, or they would take a goat, or some other animal, and they would literally um, slay the animal, its blood would be poured out at the base of the altar. Oftentimes that animal uh, was burned and consumed on the altar. And it was an image. It was a picture of salvation to those who came to this meeting place with God. Who knew that they had sins. And God would, by faith, the, the worshiper's faith in what is being laid out as a substitute for them. God would say this death of this animal and this blood that's been shed is going to atone for your sins. It's this message that A, we're a sinner. B, that we're a sinner to the extent that a a blood sacrifice is required to take away that sin. And this is this message that kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people consider to be the gospel these days. And it's even our own default thinking about the gospel. And the default thinking about the gospel is basically this, that 
um, a nice Jesus is going to do nice things for nice people, right? If you, if you believe in him and follow him, he's nice. And he blesses us and does nice things for people who are good and who are nice themselves. And that's the gospel, basically. The, the, I'm going to put it in quotes because it's not the real gospel. But that's the message that a lot of churches preach, and that's, a lot of me- that's the message that a lot of people who are religious believe. And at the end of the day, that's, that's the default way of thinking that you and I go back to all the time. If I'm a good person, God's obliged to do good things for me because he's nice and I'm nice and everybody's going to, you know, that's the nice gospel. Too bad about the cross, right? I mean, that's, that's an ugly business and we don't really want to mess with that. But you can't believe and know the gospel unless you have an understanding of what Jesus was doing on that cross. He was the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. He was a substitute. A substitute sin bearer. You and I have to put our faith in a substitute who would take our sins away, my sins, your sins away. That God's sentence for sin would be poured out on a substitute. Meaning that the penalty is paid. The, 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 the grace is given. The forgiveness is there because God's justice for sin was carried out there. So Jesus saves us from our sin. That's why his name is Jesus. But he's also a Christ. It's interesting. Um, earlier in Romans, Paul says that if you um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, John, the Apostle John says at the end of his gospel that I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ. This is the, I mean, if, if there's any message in the Bible and the Gospels about what are we to believe about Jesus, it's that he's the Christ. And what that means, it's not Jesus' last name, it's a title. It means the anointed one, the king, the Messiah. He's the Lord of lords, he's the king of kings. And to believe the Gospel means that you are believing that he is my king. Uh, that I am turning from an independent, autonomous view of my life, of religion, of, of what's going to satisfy me and what's going to bless me for an eternity. Instead, you turn and repent from those self-oriented ways of thinking about God and the gospel. And you say, no, I am going to follow Jesus' view of ultimate reality. He's going to become my, my teacher, giving me truth. He's going to become my healer. Uh, healing my soul, uh, he's going to become my king. And I'm going to give my allegiance to him. And that's just as much a part of the gospel because what the good news is, is that there is a king. There is somebody who, who governs this world and who's going to make this world uh, uh, renewed. And he's actively doing that right now. And there's a day coming when he's going to complete that in all of its fullness. And so when you think about Jesus... When you think about the gospel, and you're, you're considering him as, as Jesus Christ, he is the Lamb, and he's our Lord. The gospel has both. You can't just have him as the one who takes your sins away. Thank you very much. You know, I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. And you're not going to just follow his rules and obey his commands because you think that I can please him by virtue of my self-will and my effort and I'm better than everybody else at this. You need grace, and you need a king. You and I both need a king. 
and he came to be both. So the gospel is not the message of a nice Jesus who does nice things for nice people and isn't that nice. The gospel is this bold message that Paul is describing here in verse 13 that that on some points he's written to us very boldly. Uh, You could use the word daring or, or, or audacious there in verse 15 to describe the kinds of things that Paul has been sharing with the Roman church for the past 14 chapters. Uh, To the Thessalonians, he says that um, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, and we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The gospel is this message Uh, It's a bold message saying that you and I have to turn from everything that we were doing independently and by default uh, to a brand new way of thinking about God, a brand new way of thinking about ourselves. Jesus was so bold as to describe it as being born again. It's a brand new existence. Uh, So the gospel is this bold message, and it's offensive, um, basically. I mean, if you boil it all down, it it offends our sensibilities. You know how uh, some of you are Jane Austen fans, the sense and sensibility and pride and prejudice, and you've got these these sensibilities uh, in Victorian England or whenever they were written. Um, And there's this propriety, and there's a politeness, and there's an, uh, an assumed way of of dealing with one another, and then you get these, these really remarkable moments in, and in the way that Jane Austen can write where she exposes the veneer and the hypocrisy and all the pretending. And she, she, gets, she pulls the mask away, and she does it with some great exchanges. So you've got um, uh, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, and they've got this you know, unspoken thing going on, right? And there's this, you know, tension building. And, uh, and, and basically, the, the, the story describes how their understanding of the character and the personality of one another were wrong. There was pride involved. There was prejudice involved. And so Mr. Darcy can call out um, Elizabeth Bennet for her prejudice against him and his wealth, his stature, you know, his people. And Elizabeth can call out Mr. Darcy for his, you know, arrogance, um, his uh, lack of wanting to hang out with the the regular crowd, uh, where these are offensive things to one another. The gospel does that. It's got a way of pulling back the mask and showing us that we're not as nice as we think we are. The gospel shows us that we're guilty. The gospel shows us that we're dirty. The gospel tells us that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. These are things that we don't want to hear. That's not nice. It's offensive. And, you know, you know how a lot of times when your feelings get hurt or when my feelings get hurt, it's not often the case that the person who I feel has hurt my feelings intended to do so. It's not, that's not often the case that offense is given. A lot of times it's taken more often than it's given. But when it comes to the gospel, the offense is absolutely intended. God means what he says. He tastes the offensive. It's, uh, if you imagine a football game, uh, you know, you've got one team against the other. And imagine one team just absolutely overpowering the other team. And uh, there's the kickoff. 
the strong team gets the ball at the ten, their 10-yard line or whatever, and they march out, and they just kind of keep offensively pushing back the defense of this weaker team mercilessly all the way down the field until the defending team is backed up right against their goal line. The very next play, it's, it's a safety. The quarterback goes down, and there just was no hope. And you know it's just going to be a, a, an awful game for that team. Um, for Lydia, who plays you know, U11 soccer, they have this thing called the slaughter rule. So if a team uh, ranks, just, just uh, puts up eight, eight goals in a row in succession, the other team gets nothing, uh, they don't let the, the carnage continue, thankfully. Uh, they, they call the game. It's a uh, hey, slaughter rule. You're done. And the gospel is God's slaughter rule against us. You and I are done. We have no defenses. And God is mercilessly pushing us back, our sin nature, to where we finally raise the white flag of surrender, and then we get his mercy. Once we see that we have no resources in and of ourselves, then we get his mercy. We're open to it. We can receive it. We see Jesus as the one who takes away our sins. We see him as the the king who owns me, who owns this world and everything in it. And so the gospel is not nice, you know, but it is kind. And there's a big difference. It's kind in that it tells us the truth. The truth is good especially when the truth is something that's as life and death as, you know, this world and the, the world to come. I need to know the truth about that world. I need to know the truth about this world. It's not nice, but it's kind. It's, it's not bland. Uh, it's bold. It's, and it's, it's not safe, as, you know, C.S. Lewis described Aslan. He's not safe, but he's good, um, and we can trust him. And so the gospel's offense is not mean. It's lovingly intended because we need something as offensive and on offense to break through our own uh, defensiveness when it comes to the, the way that we imagine how good we are, how nice we are. This is the gospel that Paul uh, was preaching. And, uh, and Jack Miller used to say this, that, if we are all good people, uh, then we're not bankrupt sinners desperately needing grace. Instead, we have become self-righteous attorneys defending our own goodness. And we have become those whose subtle pride leads them to wish to be seen as right before people without deep concern for being righteous before God. We are a generation of folks uh, who were only half lost, and that may explain why so many professing Christians seem only half saved. On the days when I'm tripping over my soul, when I am just feeling like, what is wrong with me? Where am I? What am I thinking? What am I doing? What am I saying? When I'm feeling like, a, like half of a Christian, it's because I'm believing half of a gospel. I don't see God for who he is. I don't see me for who I am. Uh, the gospel is this message about a, a God who is absolutely holy, who is relentlessly holy, and has zero tolerance for anything that's unholy. But he's also relentlessly loving. He's more loving than you and I have even a, a grid to comprehend. We understand somebody nobly laying down their life for their, 
their child or their, their, their buddy or, you know, their platoon or something like that. But somebody going to a cross, a crucifixion on behalf of those who are spitting at him, beating him, insulting him, rejecting him. He did that because he loved them. That's not bland. That's bold. And the gospel is pushing against our bland view of God, a bland view of his holiness and a bland view of his love, and it's pushing against a bland view of ourselves. We think low of God, we think disproportionately high of ourselves. And the gospel is pushing against this, this way of thinking that we're really nice people that deserve nice things from a nice God. Um, this is the gospel that Paul has spent 14 chapters unraveling and unpacking, and, and he's communicating in verses 20 and 21 how it's his ambition uh, to preach this good news, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he, here he quotes Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Uh, this is you know, perfectly consistent with what Jesus was describing um, in Matthew 24, saying that this gospel of the kingdom's got to be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Um, this is the great commission that, that Paul is echoing. What, what's Paul's motivation, though? If you were to ask um, most, most evangelical Christians, most Christians that know the gospel, this, you know, this gospel, not, not the nice, bland gospel, but the bold gospel, even if you ask them, why, why do we preach this gospel? Why do we take this gospel to the neighbors? Why do we take this gospel to the neighbors and to the nations? They're going to say something like, well, uh, because... They're lost and they need to be found and there are eternal consequences for our sins and we want them to be uh, with God for an eternity in heaven. And, uh, and that, yeah, so that's, that's why we preach the gospel, so that people can be saved. And that's true. Don't, don't, please don't misunderstand how true that is. But I want you to listen to Paul's rationale and see if it kind of, is this where you're at? Is this where I'm at? Yes, we're concerned for the loss, but, but here Paul's primary concern, verses 15 and 16, he says, on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul wants to go to the nations. When you hear the word Gentiles, just substitute the word, the word nations, non-Jewish people. Paul wants to go to all these unreached nations, these Gentiles, because in his mind, he believes that they will be an offering that will be acceptable to God by uh, way of the Holy Spirit, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. What, is that, what does that mean? What Paul is saying is that he doesn't, what he's not saying is, yeah, I want all these uh, new people to be saved so that they'll, they'll give offerings to the church, and the church will make lots of money that way. You know, that's not the offering he's talking about. It's not the offerings that belong to the Gentiles. 
This is the offering of the Gentiles themselves as an offering to God. The, the offering is the Gentiles as a, as a whole nation, all the nations would be brought to God because God is worthy and he's worth all of their praise. Do you get the difference? Back in chapter 12 in Romans, Paul said, look, in view of God's mercy, in view of this gospel, present your bodies as, as a living sacrifice. Make your life an offering to God. Do everything to the glory of God. That, that's the Christian life. That's discipleship. It's not that we do our Sunday thing and then we do our other things all the rest of the week. You know, we leave and we're, we're commissioned to go and to serve the Lord, to love our neighbor, to go and give our lives uh, on and on and on as an offering to God. That's what Paul has in mind here, that the Gentiles themselves would be an offering. Um, and as I was looking at this and, and, uh, and thinking about, uh, boy, we, ugh, wouldn't it be cool? Uh, this was last night. I wish we were singing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I'm going to text Karen and see if we can substitute, swap that hymn in for whatever the opening hymn is. And then, guess what? It was already for a thousand tongues to sing because that whole point is, uh, boy, not just a thousand tongues, 10,000 tongues, 100,000 tongues, 100, 100,000 tongues should be singing God's praise because he is that worthy. Just to, you know, just a reminder, the Holy Spirit actually does lead our worship here. I'd forgotten that we had put that song in the set this morning. So that's, that was cool. That was affirming to me. Um, and that's why, you know, Wesley is asking, gosh, I wish I had more tongues to sing. I want my life to be that kind of offering. And Paul's thinking about the nations as a gift to God. If he can reach them, then that would be a beautiful gift to give to God because he's worth that gift. Is that how you think about missions? Is that how you think about yourself? that your life is meant to be an offering to God. All of your life. Not bits and pieces, but everything. Well, you know, Paul's not just committed to reaching the nations and preaching the gospel to unbelieving nations. He's also committed to preaching the gospel to his unbelieving neighbors. Um, He describes himself as a minister of Christ Jesus at the priestly service of the gospel. And he's reminding them, he's, he's by doing, saying these bold things by way of reminder, uh, because as we you know, mentioned earlier, he's just finished writing 14 chapters about the truth of the gospel and telling these believing uh, Christians in the church at Rome what the gospel is. He's not saying, I'm only going to preach the gospel to unbelievers. He's also preaching the gospel uh, to, uh, to neighbors uh, as well. And so... When we see the language of being a priest here, I want you to think about what a priest does. What does a priest do? Well, the priest, uh, in the old traditional sense, you think Old Testament, the priest would, would represent God and bring God's word to the people, and he would preach to the people, and he would tell them this is the will of the Lord. And, and so when you are fulfilling your priestly duty to your neighbors... You are God's mouthpiece, sharing the good news of Jesus the Christ. And what else does a priest do? Well, the priest also stands before the Lord representing the people, bringing their needs, their prayers, even you know, offering the, the atoning sacrifice for their sins. And, 
And so when you think of yourself as a priest, you also need to be praying for your neighbors. And are you praying for the neighbors? Maybe they're right next to you. Maybe they're a couple houses down, but they're the worst neighbors in the world. You know, I mean, they're, they're just you know, property values are you know, going downhill. They don't, they don't cut their grass. You know, their kids run wild or they've got this beater on blocks in the front yard. Gosh, we wish they didn't have those neighbors. Are you praying for them? How about the people at work, uh, the people in your co-op, wherever you are, wherever you're hanging out on the side of the soccer field, you know, um, uh, there's this study about our neighbors in regard to their faith that continues to, to draw attention because every year it goes up a percentage or two. And it's the number of people, our neighbors, here in Waynesboro and Augusta County and all over the United States, but the number of our neighbors who actually claim no religious affiliation at all in, in a census-style uh, study. And so they're not going to say they're Christian. They're not going to say they're Muslim or Buddhist or, you know, whatever label. They're going to say that they are none. Not N-U-N. They don't live in convents. They're nuns. N-O-N-E. And do you know how many of our neighbors are nuns? 25%. 25% of your neighbors, the people that you're regularly hanging out with, say, I have, I have no religious affiliation. And most of them, actually, over 8 out of 10 of the, the nuns, come from a church background. They grew up in a church, uh, they belong to a church, and they've left the church. And I was talking to uh, two uh, a husband and wife on the soccer sideline and getting a little bit of their story, and yeah, sure enough, they are nuns. They grew up in the church, they don't go to church, they've got no uh, affiliation with the church, and and you're talking to somebody like that, what do you say? How, how can you be a faithful priest to them? You say, well, oh, I can't believe you left the church. Why would you do such a terrible thing? You should go back to church, you know. Um, well, that would not be the best foot forward. Probably, um, and what God gave me the clarity of mind and grace to say instead was, um, wow, I'm sorry that you had a hard time with church. And don't, don't immediately rush to the defense of the church. Uh, you and I weren't there. We don't have any idea what happened uh, with the people that have left the church. Instead, you should probably just validate whatever you know, they perceived was negative. You're right. The, the church can often be a mess. And there's some really messy churches out there. But that, that doesn't mean that every church is a mess. Um, by coming alongside them, probably you've earned at least a little bit of a right to to participate in the conversation, and you can say something along the lines of, you know, there, there are really, you know, bad, messy churches out there, and then there are just, you know, regular churches like ours that are, you know, healthy, not perfect, but hey, we're, we're doing the best we can, and why don't you come and worship with us? And so this couple, uh, they said, maybe, and <laughs> that was the best I could do, but that's, that's all you can do. But we have to be aware that a lot of people have left the church. And maybe what they left was, was actually a good thing to leave. If all they were hearing was a bland gospel about a nice Jesus who does nice things for nice people. You can get that anywhere. Why do you need to go to church? So be mindful of who's around you. And then not only the unbelievers around us, but the believers too. Paul's reminding the Romans of what they already know. And he says in verse 14... 
Uh, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, um, which is a weird verse to me. Um, Paul's very bold in explaining in the nature of sin, and here he is almost, it sounds like he's saying, hey, you guys are a bunch of really nice people. Good for you. Um, but what it, what, what's the goodness that they're filled with? When he says that you yourselves are full of goodness, he explains it. He says, well, what you're filled with is all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So they're full of goodness. That goodness is the knowledge that they've got. And what's the knowledge of? What, what do they know? What they know is the gospel. They know, they know the truth about Jesus the Christ. Uh, they are, as he told the Corinthians, they are jars of clay themselves, but they have this treasure within. And they need to be admiring and respecting and, and demonstrating the beauty of, of that treasure. Um, and this is what we need to be doing uh, as we think about the gospel, that we are full of this message. We are full of this hope. We are full of this power. Uh, and, in, and if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves and to our family members, to our friends, uh, we're missing out on the beauty of that. All of us have a very influential teacher or preacher in, in your life, in your background. I don't know if, if you grew up in a church and you remember your, your preacher when you were growing up. Um, if you've been at Tabernacle a while, uh, I know I've had some influence uh, through the ministry of the word here. Maybe you've got a favorite preacher and you know, you've got their podcast going, whatever the case is. Do you know the, the most influential preacher, teacher in your life is? Uh, Paul Tripp sets us <laughs> straight. He says that the most influential preacher in your life is not pastor so-and-so or the radio preacher. The most influential preacher in your life is you. You are. No one is more influential to you than yourself. Because you are in a constant conversation with yourself. What, what kind of things are you constantly saying to yourself, whether mentally or, or non-verbally, whatever the case is? A lot of times we're not even aware that we're actually preaching a gospel to ourselves all the time. All the time. And it's either going to be this gospel or it's going to be something like this. You know, if I just work harder, then I'll get that promotion, or then I can jump to this job, and then the job will be easier, I'll make more money, um, you know, it'll be better for my family, I'll get out of debt, get out from under these bills, can finally go on vacation, can finally take it easy, I can finally have some relief from the bitterness of my life. Be saved from this curse. Maybe the, the gospel that you're preaching to yourself goes like this. If I study harder, I'll get, I'll get the grades that I need, I'll pass these exams, I'll move on, I can go to grad school, and then I can get that really good job, and then I can, you know, you, you fill in the blank from the first false gospel. Or if I really, if I exercise and if I 
you know, get you know, a better wardrobe, if, I'm, if I just look prettier, if I look stronger, if I you know, bulk up, then you know, people will respect me, they'll admire me, they'll accept me, and then I'll be free from the bitterness and the loneliness and the curse that I feel. Or, you know, I just, I, I, need, I need better plans. I need to have a, a better weekend, a bigger weekend. I need to eat more, and if I drink more, and if I do more, then I will forget more of the pain that I carry with me all the time. How's that for a gospel? We all have these tapes playing, this recording of, of, of whatever the gospel of salvation is. And more and more as we grow in Christ, our job is to replace that, that false gospel with the true gospel of, of Jesus the Christ, the Lamb and the Lord, who is... good and he's strong. Um, Wesley was right at the top of that ridge with Princess Buttercup. Life is pain. The question is, where are you going to go to medicate? Can you believe, can you believe that one would love you so much that he would be so good to you that he would come, live his life among us and give himself, lay down his life for you? Can you trust the goodness of a heart that would do that for you? I'm not saying I can make sense of whatever you're going through. I'm not saying Jesus owes you an explanation. I'm not saying anybody can flowchart it for you. Life is crazy. This is a crazy world, but, but we know. And we can trust the goodness of Jesus because we have seen what he has done for us. And we know that he is strong. He is a king. He is a king of kings. He rules all things. He governs all things. He sustains all things. He knows what he's doing. He's not asleep behind the wheel and again, that doesn't mean that we can flowchart everything that's going wrong in your life, in this world, or whatever, but where is your hope? Is it what you can manufacture and manipulate in order to try to make sense of things, or are you casting yourself on Jesus the Christ, the Lamb and the Lord, one who is good and who is strong? This is Paul's gospel. In the next chapter, he says, may this strengthen you. Is this a, does your gospel strengthen you? Does it strengthen your wife or your husband or your friend or your child or your coworker? Or um, is it just a nice gospel? Does your gospel strengthen you? As you listen to yourself, as I listen to myself, as I go, what in the world am I thinking? Where am I looking for a hope and salvation? As we come back to our senses and we remember, oh yeah, now I have strength. Now I can carry on. Let's pray. Father, would you 
Give us grace and strength to uh, not just endure, but to persevere and to rejoice in your goodness and in your strength. Would you help us with the places where we really do experience uh, the pain and the brokenness of this world? Would you help us to run from the, the empty things that we're trying to find satisfaction from? Would you fill us with the goodness of Jesus? the reminder of his presence and his power with us. Pray for those here this morning who are maybe connecting the dots for the first time about the real gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would show them how to repent of their sins and how to believe in Jesus and follow him, maybe even just for the first time. And Lord, for the rest of us, we, we need to keep remembering this. We need to keep repenting. We need to keep following Jesus. Please give us the grace and the strength to do that. Would you remind us of our call, our priestly ministry to the lost? Would you send us out to share this good news with our neighbors and with the nations? We pray for our missionaries that you would protect them and that you would help their ministries to flourish, their new churches to grow and to multiply. Lord, would you advance your kingdom throughout this world and may many, many, many nations, thousands of tongues be added to your praise even today. We pray that you would continue to to be king and Lord in our community. Um, Thank you for the ministries that demonstrate your lordship and your goodness. We pray for comfort, care, and your blessing on